0: Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. What's what the poster, said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Do you want to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. And now, Grant Nathan. again everybody i hope you had a fabulous thanksgiving it is so great to have you here it is part two of grand stories we'll get to that in just a moment but today's podcast is brought to you by new works plumbing of sacramento locally owned for over 20 years new works has a fix for you for your plumbing needs and repairs just go to com. N E W WRXplumbing.com. Remember, if you happen to have an emergency in the middle of the night, no problem. New Works will be there with their 24-7 service. That's NewWorksPlumbing.com for all of your plumbing needs and repairs. N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. On Tuesday's episode, I talked a lot about my childhood. I talked about the influence that my parents had on me, specifically my father, talked about growing up in a community, Syosset, Long Island. And I didn't really talk that much about growing up around the corner from Christopher Mad Dog Russo. But uh, Chris and I grew up together and uh, it was it's pretty interesting to see his career and what he has accomplished in this radio world. And when you look back at life to this point, it's about friendships, it's about relationships. And I've been pretty lucky I've experienced some pretty amazing things. And I've also been very fortunate to be a part of a lot of great sports rivalries as a fan. Not necessarily as a broadcaster, but as a fan. And I have found myself in some pretty amazing situations. I was so enthralled with the rivalry between the 49ers and the Giants in the late 80s. And of course, you know, the 49ers and the Cowboys had some incredible Uh, playoff matchups as well during the Giants 49ers era. But, you know, growing up as a New York Giants fan, you know, being at the first game really as a three-year-old at the bleachers of Yankee Stadium. And when my dad came on our radio show with Mike Lamb, the last time that my dad appeared on the show, uh, he told the story about going to a Giants-Cowboys game in December and he had said, make sure you put two pairs of socks on, blah, blah, blah. And I get to the game, and I guess I'm whining and complaining because my feet are cold, and my dad looks down, I only have one pair of socks on. And, you know, it was frigid. It's freezing. It's December. And my dad took his socks off and put them on me, and it said, now shut up and watch the game. <laughs> it was very, You know, that, that's how I was raised. You know, we didn't miss games. <laughs> we didn't leave early. Uh, it didn't matter what the weather was. Uh, we were always going to be at the game. But fast forward to the mid-'80s in the late 80s when the 49ers were already the king of the National Football League for the most part of course you had the 85 Bears but some of the most memorable games that I've ever been at were games between the 49ers and the Giants and for two of them on Monday Night Football not the game in 1986 a Monday Night Football where the Giants were down 17-0 at half and they scored three touchdowns in the third. That was the game Mark Bavaro made the unbelievable catch and uh, dragged a couple of 49er defenders with them down the field. Giants won that game 21-17 to and they won their first Super Bowl that year, January 25th 1987. I've told the story about me going to the game and selling my extra ticket that has face value of $75 for $750 but little did I know when I was at that game in the Rose Bowl, Pasadena, making $15,000 a year that I would be living now in Sacramento six months after the Super Bowl, January 25th, 1987, I'm working in Decatur, Illinois, making about 15000 a year with overtime. And in July, all right, almost July 25th, I'm in my Subaru hatchback driving from Decatur, Illinois to Sacramento, California with no air conditioning in the middle of a, just an oppressive heat wave. I mean, it was so freaking hot driving across the country. And I'll never forget not knowing where to go once I was on I-80 and you can either go on Business 80 or you can continue over the top on Interstate 80. And I took a guess and I stayed and I went on Business 80. And I'm on Business 80 and then it runs right in the Highway 160 and I knew that the TV station that I had interviewed at less than two weeks before was on Highway 160 and they put me up at the old Woodlake which uh, then became the Radisson. And I'll never forget pulling into the Woodlake Inn on about January 25th, 1987. And it was probably 110, 111, 112 degrees outside. And I remember checking into my room and then walking back to the lobby area where they had their restaurant overlooking the lake, the pond for lack of a better term. And there were palm trees, and it was hot. I'm the only one outside. I don't care. I'm in freaking California with palm trees. Are you kidding me? You know, that's another thing you don't understand when you grow up in certain locations. When you grow up on the East Coast and go to college in Ohio and work in Illinois, you know, a palm tree to you is like a freaking oasis. That you don't see palm trees in the Northeast, all right? You don't, you don't go to Bowling Green, Ohio, and on East Wooster Street and on Main Street, you're looking up and there are palm trees, okay? You don't go to Decatur, Illinois, and see palm trees. There's something about palm trees, it just puts you in a good mood when you've never experienced that before. So I'm sitting out there and I'm looking at the palm trees, and I'm just going, wow. And I didn't know anybody other than a few people that I met at Channel 31 the week prior for my interview. I didn't know one single person. No one. Did not know a single person when I got to Sacramento. But then, I mean, I could not believe that I would be covering the 49ers with season credentials. And the 49ers and Giants had two amazing Monday night football games in the 80s. All right? So I believe the... 87 season and the 88 in those two years, the 49ers won both those matchups. And then in 89 and 90 were the two Monday night games. And in 89, I'll never forget this because I took Danny Ainge to his first ever NFL game. And I picked Danny up after practice at Arco arena on a Monday. And I had the most amazing talk with Danny. Danny's a fascinating person. I have so much respect for Danny Ainge. He's such a great guy, such a family man. And and we had just the, the best talk. And he was explaining to me on the drive to San Francisco how a lot of people in Sacramento did not understand why he didn't want to do personal appearances, even though it was required under his contract. Or, you know, he could go do a two-hour appearance and get paid a couple of thousand dollars. And he was telling me, that his brother and other siblings that were teachers did not understand how on earth he could turn down that kind of money for such a short period of time. And Danny explained to me that nothing came above his family and that his wife and his children always were his priority in life and it never changed. And you could see that. I used to go to Danny's house and play tennis occasionally. Danny had a house in Granite Bay and had a tennis court in his backyard. And Danny was the most competitive son of a gun. I mean, geez, I mean, it was unbelievable playing tennis with Danny Ainge. I mean, he was as competitive on the tennis court as he was, you know, playing basketball. I really mean that. But you could tell what his family meant to him, that it really was his priority. But we had the best conversation driving to San Francisco when I had field passes and Danny and I stood on the sideline and I had my camera and I was videoing the Niners... Giants game. The Niners won that game in 89. That was Monday Night Football. And then the following year, in 1990, maybe the best one of the best football games I've ever seen. Standing on the New York Giants sideline, Bon Jovi was standing next to me. There were a couple of other celebrities right on the field. And the Niners won that game 7-3. And at the end of that game, Phil Simms and Ronnie Lott got into it. And years later, On my radio show in Sacramento, I had Ronnie Lott on, and I said, Ronnie, I I don't know if you're going to agree with me on this, but I want to talk to you about a game that was played on Monday Night Football in 1990, you against the Giants. Seven to three, the final score, I said to Ronnie, and I said, I got to tell you, that's one of the greatest football games I've ever witnessed. And he said, man, it's amazing you said that because it's one of the top three games of my life. And I just thought that was fascinating that Ronnie played in so many games, in so many playoff games and Super Bowls, and he says that 1990 Monday night 7-3 game is one of the three best games, and it was an incredible game. But then a couple of weeks later, and I remember being outside the Giants locker room after that 7-3 loss, and they were interviewing Bill Parcells, and Bill said, I kind of have a feeling we'll see each other again. And they did in 1990. It's one of the great experiences for me being in the end zone at the end of that game when Matt Barr kicked a game-winning kick. And if you watch the NFL films or you watch the highlights, if you're looking at the ball go through the uprights from behind the kicker, I am to the right of the goalpost. And I have a long-sleeve, blue uh, blue and white striped shirt, but, but wide stripes, all right? And you can see me, after the ball goes through, jumping up and down. And what I remember about that is... The stadium was in a fever pitch. The noise was deafening. And when the ball went through the upright and the officials raised their hands, you could hear a pin drop in the stands, but you could hear all the screaming from the Giants players celebrating, rushing from the sideline out to mob Matt Barr. Now I'm standing on the end line and I've got a press pass and Jim Crandall, who has since retired from Fox 40 and John Hank and the other Sacramento TV anchors will tell you that watching me run onto the field, they could not believe it. I ran onto the field. Okay. From the baseline. And I am in the middle of the New York Giants celebration, hitting guys on the helmet, hitting guys on the pads. And I went into the locker room after the game. And there were a couple of things that I really remember about that experience. Number one, You know, it wasn't as noisy as I thought. You know, the Super Bowl was only uh, that next Sunday. They didn't have a week off that year. And one of the other things I remember is walking out of the locker room and Phil Simms was standing against the wall with another individual. And Phil wasn't even in the locker room. Phil had been hurt a couple of weeks prior from Bruce Smith and the Buffalo Bills. And he didn't play the rest of the year. And Jeff Hostetler, as we all know, took over and guided the Giants to a Super Bowl. But I remember looking at Phil, because he didn't seem like, I mean, I could tell that the enjoyment for him was just not the same. Yeah, I think he was happy for his teammates and everything else, but I could see the anguish on his face, and I always remember that. But I talk about, like, everything coming full circle. In 1987, January 25th, I'm at the Super Bowl in Southern California, Never been to Southern California. And then a little more than six months later, I'm in Northern California starting my new career. I talk about the memorable 49er Giants games. I talked about going to the Candlestick Park for the first time in 1983 when I was fortunate enough to appear on national TV for the California Bowl. It was the first time I'd ever been on TV And I share the story that when I woke up the next day, the entire valley was fogged in, you know, that Thule thick fog and you couldn't even see, I opened up the windows and I couldn't even see the cars in a parking lot. And I was supposed to fly from Fresno to San Francisco and San Francisco back to uh, St. Louis and I couldn't get out of Fresno. So I rented a car and I remember driving and coming out through San Jose and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. There was no fog. And I remember how green everything was. I remember being in the car and I was like, oh my gosh. And it was one of those beautiful, beautiful December Sundays. No clouds, temperature, low 60s. And I have never been to Northern California before. Never been to San Francisco. And I remember driving across the Bay Bridge. And my dream was to always drive across the Golden Gate Bridge, and mind you, I have no idea where I'm going. I've been rebooked on a red eye that night out of San Francisco, so I've got all day to spend. And then I realized that the 49ers were playing that night against the Atlanta Falcons. And so I took that unbelievable drive above the Golden Gate Bridge to the left, you know, that windy road that goes up the hill. And I, to this day, and I've been blessed to go in a lot of places around the world, I believe that is the prettiest stretch of road in the entire world. I don't think there's a prettier drive anywhere in the world than above the Golden Gate Bridge and going up the the hills and then back down where it looks like you're literally going to fall into the ocean and then all the way to the point. I think that is the most unbelievable drive in the world. And I remember that drive as if it happened yesterday. But what I remember was going to Candlestick Park parking the car in the parking lot, paying whatever it was. And I didn't have a ticket to the game. And so you have Montana and the 49ers against Steve Bartkowski and the Atlanta Falcons. And I'm outside Candlestick Park. And a man walks up to me, goes, hey, you looking for a ticket? And I said, yes, how much is it? He goes, no problem. You can have it. He goes, the person that was going to show up with us can't go and you can have it. I go, wow, thank you so much. I can't believe that. And I end up sitting next to this gentleman And it was, you know, we got chatting and he was asking me what I I was doing in San Francisco. I said, hey, I got to tell you, I can't thank you enough for this. You know, I've never been here before. It's my first time. And we just, I had a great time. I couldn't believe I was at a 49ers game at Candlestick Park. And then what I really couldn't believe, and this is a memory that will never leave me. When I started doing the Raiders games in the early 2000s for five years, and the Raiders and the 49ers played every year, and the first game... I ever announced at Candlestick Park, I parked on the parking lot on the east side of Candlestick Park and I remember walking in through the entrance field level and I remember walking across the field and looking at the empty stadium. It's about three and a half hours before kickoff and I remember just thinking about being in that stadium in 1983, watching the 49ers and the Atlanta Falcons. And to be quite honest with you, it may have been 1982. I I don't recollect if it was 82 or 83. I should look it up. But the, the point was that as I was walking across that field, I was thinking about being in that stadium for the first time in the early 80s, the week before Christmas, I was remembering standing on the sidelines with Danny Ainge and those great Monday night matchups between the Giants and the 49ers. Remember standing on the end line underneath the goalpost, watching the kick by Matt Barr go through the uprights. And it was such a thrill for me to walk across that field on that day getting ready to announce a 49ers game. I'd been on the sideline for Troy Aikman and Steve Young and those games in the mud and so many other great games in that stadium. It was such a thrill for me to walk across that field that night. You know, being on the field, you do things in this profession when you grow up as a kid that you don't even think of. And one of the most amazing experiences that I ever had was covering the Dodgers A's World Series, the Kirk Gibson home run. You know, I went to college with Oral Hershiser. Oral used to come to our fraternity house a lot because uh, my roommate in my first year of college was a pitcher on the baseball team, Ed Stacy. So he and Oral used to uh, get together a lot. And Oral's fraternity, Oral was a Sigma Chi, I believe, and that fraternity house was right across from ours. And so uh, I used to see Oral a lot, and that was the year that Oral was unhittable. But I was covering the World Series and the clinching game for the Dodgers was at the Oakland Coliseum. And I had a press pass and I'm right near the Dodgers dugout when they clinch it. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I'm standing there and I'm like, OK, you know, we're going to do postgame and everything. And I see a lot of the uh, media run out onto the field and I'm like, well, screw it. I'm going on the field, too. I'm not a Dodgers fan. I'm not an A's fan, but I was in the infield of the L.A. Dodgers celebration of the World Series. And I was literally, I would say, 10 feet away when Oral Hersheiser did the Disney World commercial. Oral, now that you have won the World Series, where are you going now? I'm going to Disney World or Disneyland, wherever the hell it was. And I, that was so neat to be able to experience that. You know, being uh, as a fan, and again, I'm talking as a fan here, when you get a chance to experience things. You know, I talk about the story from Danny in England. Danny is a, just a crazy Kings fan. And he came to Toronto and I surprised him with a press pass. And I took him into the locker room and I had him meet Keith smart. And Keith said, Hey, if we win, I would love for you to come and talk to the guys. I think it's amazing that, you know, you came from all the way across the ocean. He goes, I want our players to realize that they're not only playing for the fans here and in Sacramento, but fans around the world. And, Long story short, the Kings win, and Keith Smart had Danny go into the locker room and talk to the team. And I'm just thinking, wow, it really doesn't get any better than that. But growing up as a lifelong New York Rangers fan, when one of my best friends in life, George McPhee, and I'm going to share the story because this is really one of the, you know, I talk about everything coming full circle in life. So George McPhee won the Hobie Baker Award at Bowling Green, my alma mater. That's the Heisman of college hockey. So, George grew up with Brian McClellan, all right? They were both from Guelph, Ontario. Grew up together, played hockey together, were best friends. Both went to Bowling Green. Both had unbelievable careers. Both went on to the National Hockey League. Both were captains on the Bowling Green hockey team. George, 5'9", Mac, 6'4". And Mac was strong as a wall. Mac was 6'4 and built like a brick you-know-what. And we used to go to this bar in Bowling Green called the Broadhouse. And the bouncer back then, his name is J.D. And J.D. was from Pittsburgh. And J.D. always had a Pirate's hat on. You could walk into the Broadhouse at any day, any time of the night, any, it didn't matter, and J.D. would have a Pirate's hat on. All right, fast forward, J.D. now owns the Broadhouse. I was in Bowling Green, I say, seven, eight, nine years ago. We had a game in Cleveland, and then we had a game in Indiana, and I rented a car and went to Bowling Green on the off night. And I walked into the Broadhouse. I had not been in the Broadhouse for a long, 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 long time. J.D.'s the owner of the Broadhouse now. And I sit down at the bar, and there's J.D. behind the bar, with his Pirates hat on. Now, I don't say a word, all right? I order a beer and I'm sitting there. And J.D. goes, are you Grant Napier? I'm like, J.D., how the hell are you, buddy? What the F is going on? I thought you were never going to recognize me. And we sat there and we had the best time. You know, a small world. But we used to go into the Broadhouse, house and Mac, when Mac used to have a couple of pops, Mac would go crazy. Mac would sometimes just come up to you and just give you a quick punch into the chest. And I'm not kidding you, it almost knocked you out. All right. Or there were times when we would be playing foosball and Mac would take to little foosball. And when you weren't looking, Mac would wind up and throw the foosball as hard as he could at your head. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Mac was freaking nuts. But George McPhee and Brian McClellan, childhood friends, best friends, Guelph, Ontario, captains, Bowling Green. George ends up going to play for the New York Rangers. Matt goes on and ends up playing for the Calgary Flames and then the Rangers and uh, uh, another team or two. But you talk about life, right? So George ends up playing for the Rangers. George, again, to this day, is one of my very best friends. George had never been to New York before. Never been to New York before. And his first game ever with the Rangers was in the playoffs against the Philadelphia Flyers. And the first two games were in Philly. And I drove from Bowling Green to Cleveland because I was working at WKIQ at the time in Bowling Green because Cleveland had the superstation, WOR, Channel 9, that televised the games. So I went to my college fraternity brother's house, Tom Sports. I said, "Spo, you get Channel 9, right? He goes, yeah. I go, "Spo, I'm coming. I'm watching the game. And I drove to Philadelphia. Or Philadelphia. I drove to Cleveland for both games one and two. And then I said, George, I got to be at the garden for your debut. I have to be there. He said, NAPES, I got a ticket for you. You're good. Come on. He goes, you can stay with me. I'm like, okay. Uh, I end up going to New York. I arrive the day of the game. And I get to the garden as soon as the fans were allowed in. And I walk down as close as I can to ice level. And when George McPhee... Came out onto the ice in warm-ups. It was one of the most amazing feelings that I've ever had. A lot of the fans were already in attendance. They were going crazy. And I'm watching George through the whole warm-up and the Rangers. And George became an instant fan favorite in New York. They loved George because he used to fight and he was tough as nails. And they put George on the line with Ron Dugay. Duguay Doogie was like Derek Jeter of New York in hockey. Doogie was always referenced as one of the top 10 bachelors every year in New York City. I mean, Doogie was unbelievable. He, Ron Duguay was incredible. And they put George on his line. And George scored a couple of goals in that series. And the fans loved George. And I'll never forget, after the game, George coming out and getting me and taking me into the locker room. And again, as a fan, you know, growing up watching a team, You know, it's just like an incredible experience. But so George plays in the National Hockey League for uh, 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 Rangers, then the Devils. Then he is done playing hockey, goes to law school, and then ends up being the right-hand man to Pat Quinn, the general manager and coach of the Vancouver Canucks. Fast forward to 1994, Rangers Canucks. Stanley Cup Finals. I had always said, one of my dreams, I've got to be at the, got to be there when the Rangers win the Cup. So I went to games three and four in Vancouver, stayed at George and his wife's house, uh, a condo, Leah, in Vancouver. Came back to Sacramento, did the news. Flew to New York, went to game five. Rangers lost. Went to Vancouver for game six, stopping in Sacramento to anchor the sports on the news. Rangers lost. Now the series is tied at 3-3. I, the Rangers were up 3-1. George says, I can only get you one ticket for game seven. Fly back to New York. Rangers win, and they win the Stanley Cup. Now, George, okay, is cemented. He's going to move up the ladder very quickly. One of my biggest dreams in this profession was always announcing the National Hockey League. Well, that year, I'd sent a tape to a guy named Mark Stolberger, the director of broadcasting for the San Jose Sharks. I went to San Jose on an off day. And I called up the media relations director. I said, hey, can I can I sit in one of your empty booths and just do a game? He goes, yeah, you can go to this booth. I'll make sure that, you know, you're all good and I'll have a press pass for you. And I went to San Jose one day and I announced a game. And I sent my tape to Mark Stolberger. Well, the following year, I get a call from Mark Stolberger. Uh And he blew me away. He goes, listen, our TV guy is going on maternity leave and he's going to miss some games. And I really think your hockey play-by-play is excellent. Uh, Are you available to fill in for a couple of games? He goes, it could be, you know, one game. It could be five games. We don't know yet. And I said, what are the dates? I said, yes, I can do it. And the first game I did was at the Shark Tank against Vancouver. And I'm thinking, gosh, how lucky can I be? I just watched Vancouver play in the Stanley Cup Finals. I know all the players on Vancouver. I know their history. I know all their players. I know George. And, of course, I had been watching the Sharks. So for my first ever game, like for me, I could not have picked a better team to announce than the Vancouver Canucks. And I'll never forget, I'm doing a game with Pete Stemkowski. And I used to love Stemmer. Stemmer was a Ranger, and I used to love watching Pete Stemkowski play for the Rangers. He was one of my favorite players. And now I'm in the broadcast booth doing a game with... Stemmer, well, we're in the middle of the game and there was a player on Vancouver. whose name was Dana Merzen, all right? To this day, I remember his number. He was number five, Dana Merzen. So I'm calling Merzen, 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 and Stemmer's calling him Merza, Merza with an A. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the play-by-play, Stolberg is yelling, it is fucking Merzen, M-U-R-Y-Z-N. He's yelling at Pete Stemkowski, but it's coming through my headset too. I was uh, in the middle of doing play by play. Never forget that. It is fucking Merzin. And, and I was like, oh my lord. And then the next game I did was in LA and Wayne Gretzky was on that team. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm announcing a National Hockey League game, and Wayne Gretzky is playing. And then I did one more game against Anaheim. So I got my fix. All right, so now George ends up going to Vancouver, from Vancouver to Washington, drafts Alex Ovechkin and put the entire Washington Capitals team together. And George got to the Stanley Cup Finals in his first year with Oli the goalie, Olaf Kolzig, and had some really good years, but could never win a cup. And after, I think 17 years, George was fired, but a couple of years prior, George had reached out to Brian McClellan. Mac was living in Minneapolis and really wasn't doing anything with hockey. And George goes, Mac, you know what? Why don't you scout for me? Why don't you scout for me? I'm going to give you a job. I want you to scout for me in the Minneapolis area. And so George hired Mac and he started off as a scout and really was incredible over the years, elevated himself within the organization, and George made Mac his assistant. And when George got fired, guess who they hired to be the new general manager? Brian McClellan. So now George is out of the NHL. Mac takes over the Washington Capitals, which were, you know, a very elite team with Alex Ovechkin and all of those other players that they had on their team. They were good. They were very good. And then George gets the job with the Vegas Golden Knights. And George put that entire team together. So what does George's team do in the very first year of existence? That's right. They win the Western Conference Finals and they get into the Stanley Cup. Who are they playing in the Stanley Cup? That's right. They're playing the Washington Capitals. George McPhee against Brian McCollin. George and Mac, who grew up in Guelph, Ontario, who were best friends that went to Bowling Green, who were captains of the Bowling Green hockey team, both went on to play in the NHL. Mac, who was out of hockey, George said, "Mac, scout for me, elevated him through the organization, made him his lead assistant, and then he becomes the general manager. And not only that, Washington beats Vegas to win their first ever Stanley Cup. Small world, huh? Pretty amazing. You know, I talk about the people that I've met Along the way, in my career, it's fascinating. Reggie Theus is a very good friend of mine. Otis Thorpe, the salt of the earth. Spud Webb, a dear friend of mine. The late women, Tisdale, who just, I mean, I, I can't say enough about the Tisdale family. Lionel Simmons, Jason Thompson, Vladdy, Peja, Hito. And I talk about Vladdy so much because Vladdy's one of the great human beings I've ever been around. And I will tell you, one of the great weeks that I've ever had was 2007 and Vladi inviting me to his retirement week over in Serbia. In Serbia, when you retire, there is a ritual where you make a final basket. You make a final shot and you determine where you want that to be made. And so Vladi chose his hometown, but he made a week-long celebration. And I realized that the Sacramento Kings were very popular over in Serbia, but I had no idea what it was like. And when we got over there, it was like rock stars walking around. Chris Webber was there, Scott Pollard, uh, Grant Rice was over there, uh, a couple of, and all, all of Lottie's European teammates, all of them were there. And one of the most incredible stories, and I'll never forget this, was Lottie got the presidential train to go from Belgrade to his hometown which was a little more than four hours. It was like between four and five hours on the train. And this train was pretty amazing. Each car was different. Some cars had beds. Some cars had regular seats. Some cars had conference rooms. But it was the presidential train that Vladi got for all of us. And what also was fascinating is Greg Popovich was on this trip. And I spent a lot of time with Pop at restaurants, on that train, uh, on buses. Uh, It was fascinating getting to know Pop because is a hell of an individual, and I really just loved being around him and hearing his stories. But one of the things that was always amazing about being on that train that day, going to Vladi's hometown, was that people in Serbia had heard that Vladi was coming through on the presidential train. And you go through the countryside, and then you go through a small town, and then it's a countryside, and there's farmland, and there are houses that are spread out, and there's just lots of farmland. And there were literally people on top, of their houses, waiting for the train to come by and waving, waving, so they could see the train and wave to Vladi Divatz. And so we're on the train about two, two and a half hours. And Vladi said the train wasn't going to stop; that we were just going all the way, and the train would not stop. All of a sudden, we pull into this station, and the train stops, and the tr- the, the platform is full of people. It is just completely full of people. So the train stops. Vladi gets out with everyone else shake hands spend some time with all the fans we get back on the train and there were people along the entire four and a half five hours whatever it was out waving to us as we go by roads backyards on top of houses it was absolutely unfreaking believable and while we were there they unveiled the new vlade divots museum in his hometown all the memorabilia from Vladi and Drazen Petrovic and all of the European championships, the Olympics and everything else in this museum. Well, unbeknownst to all of us on the trip, we were there for the last basket ceremony. And what Vladi had done before we all got to Serbia is he reached out to the schools in his hometown. And he said, I would like you to pick one very special young boy or girl to make my final basket. And so we pull up to this basketball court and everyone in the town is there. I mean, everyone. The stores were closed. The restaurants were closed. Everyone was there to see Vladi Divatz. And there's a PA system and they announced to the crowd for this boy to step forward. This boy had overachieved in school had gone above and beyond with his classwork, his extracurricular activity, his community service, and everything else. So Vladi calls this boy out, hands him the ball, walks over to the basket, picks the kid up by his hips, raises him above his head, and that boy made Vladi Divatz's last shot. And I'm watching all of that. I'm going, that is Vladi Devots to an absolute T. And that trip was unbelievable, fabulous, and I'll never forget being in the middle of the square in Belgrade for a special event, and we were all up on the stage, and I was just blown away how many Serbians came up to me because they knew me from watching the Kings. They all watched the Kings. They all got up or stayed up late to watch the Kings game. That was a fascinating fascinating week another fascinating week was in february it's february in october of 2004 when we were in the china games playing the houston rockets and the kings were one of the best teams in the nba and yao was on the rockets and i shared the story of yao stopping at his elementary school on the way to the press conference but the nba i realized when we were in shanghai and beijing that the nba was like The Rolling Stones pulling up to the hotel. Paparazzi were everywhere. The paparazzi were at the uh, airport. The paparazzi were at the hotel. The paparazzi was everywhere. And I'll never forget being on the bus, going to the first game in Shanghai. And about two miles from the arena, and we had a police escort, there were people lined up on the sides of the streets in Shanghai so they could watch the team bus go through. And then when we pulled up to the arena and we parked outside and we had to walk about 25 paces from the steps into the arena in Shanghai, there were people everywhere, everywhere screaming and hollering as we walked off the bus. They couldn't wait to see Chris and Vladdy and Peja. And it was like a rock band. But when Yao and the Houston Rockets pulled up, I mean multiply the Rolling Stones by about 100, and that was the atmosphere where Yao grew up in Shanghai. It was one of the most amazing experiences that I can remember. You know, I talk about my life and what I'm thankful for, and I talk about my career, and it's all about experiences. It's about things that you got a chance to do that you could only dream about as a little boy growing up in Syosset, New York, and going to Yankee Stadium to watch Mickey Mantle play, going to Yankee Stadium to watch Y.A. Tittle play, and Fran Tarkington and Homer Jones, and seeing Roger Staubach throw to Bob Hayes. Roger Staubach is one of the most fascinating people that I've ever met. You know, we talk about, again, life just jumping out at you. I was blessed to be invited to a 70th birthday party. My wife and I went to Dallas for Ted Skokas' 70th birthday. And it was a phenomenal affair uh, in a beautiful venue. And there were circular tables with our names on the table. And I look and I find our table and I see my name. And then I see another name that was very familiar to me to the left because he was one of the broadcasters for the Dallas Mavericks, Dead this Sidelines. And then next to me was Roger Staubach. And his wife and I was like oh my gosh Roger Staubach is sitting next to me and I will tell you we sat there for a couple of hours and Roger and his wife could not have been nicer more humble more polite they were amazing and Roger started asking me questions about what I did and I said well I don't think you're gonna like me very much I'm from New York I'm a diehard Giants fan and he started laughing And I asked him, I go, I'm just curious, was it a thrill for you to go play at Yankee Stadium? And he said, oh, it was the highlight of my year to play at Yankee Stadium because I always wanted to be a major league player. He goes, I played baseball at the Naval Academy. I go, really? I didn't know that. He said, yeah, I didn't start playing football until high school. I go, wow, I was totally unaware of that. And I said to him, "Uh, I used to love when you came in and Bob Hayes, because I just thought it was fascinating that I was going to be able to go to a football game and watch the fastest person on earth run the field. And he said, you know, my longest completion I ever made was to Bob Hayes uh, at Yankee stadium. I said, I know to this day, I'm still upset that spider Larkhart made a mistake on that play. And he looked at me, he goes, you're kidding, right? I said, no. He said, you're exactly right. And he told me about the play and told me about the read and how he was able to throw to Bob Hayes. And he was fascinated that I knew that number 43, Spider Larkhart made a mistake on the play and Roger Staubach hit Bob Hayes. And who knows, maybe Bob Hayes is still running somewhere in heaven. You know what I'm saying? Bob freaking Hayes, Bob Hayes. Oh, what a thrill it was to see Bob Hayes and Roger Staubach, right? Calvin Hill and all those great players. The giants were terrible back then, but anyway, back to Roger Staubach. So, you want to know how nice of a guy Roger Starbuck is? He said, listen, I have two suites at the Cowboys games. You are welcome to come anytime the Giants are in town. You let me know and you can be my guest. I would love to have you and your wife. You can be our guest. And I go, wow. I go, you know, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. That really means a lot to me. I mean, just think about how nice that was from Roger Starbuck. I've been blessed to meet so many great people. I talk about getting to know Dusty Baker over the last 25 years or so. And I was so happy when Dusty won the World Series as manager. Dusty's the salt of the earth. Dusty is just good people. His father was a fixture at the Sacramento Kings games. You know, I talk about the story of interviewing Sparky Anderson – when the Tigers won the World Series, but when they got off to that 30-5 and start, and I couldn't get into the managerial office, and I was just working part-time at Channel 24, the ABC station in Toledo, and I had interviewed Alan Trammell, and I interviewed uh, Parrish, I interviewed Whitaker, but I needed to get an interview with Sparky, and after I got the player interviews, I walked by the managerial office, and I noticed that it was empty, and I knocked on the door, and I said, hey, I really apologize. I couldn't get in here earlier. Would it be all right if I grab a quick word from you? And Sparky didn't have a shirt on. He goes, yeah, come in, sit down. He goes, I haven't seen you before. I said, yeah, my name is Grant Napier. I just started working at the ABC station in Toledo. And this is you know, my first time covering the Tigers with a pass. He goes, hey, you know what? It's great to have you. What can I do for you? He goes, let me put a shirt on. I go, no, my cameraman can just shoot you from the neck up. He goes, no, 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 I'll put a shirt on for you. And then years later, when I was doing my radio show, in Sacramento and I had Sparky Anderson as a guest and I relayed the story to Sparky and he says I remember that story and I remember you because I watched the Kings and I know all about you and I was just like wow like you don't like things like that just like blow you away I talk about Wayman Tisdale when I interviewed Wayman after the Illinois Oklahoma game on the NBC college game of the Week. And I was doing a story solely on Tizzy. And I was not lying. I was doing it just to make money, to sell to Sports Time and ESPN. And Oklahoma lost. And I'm like, gosh, I'm not going to be able to get Tizzy. And finally, the SID gets Tizzy to come out of the locker room. And I asked him three questions. And then when Tizzy came to play in Sacramento some 10 years later as I'm doing the games for the Kings, uh, I said, Tizzy, man, you probably don't remember me. But, man, I interviewed you outside the locker room in Illinois, And he goes, Oh, that was you? I go, Yeah, that was me. I go, Tizzy, you were so shy. You were he goes, We had just lost. I said, Yeah, but you were and we got a big laugh out of that. It's just amazing. Some of the people that you meet along the way that you just you have no idea how your lives will be connected. You know, I talk about think about George McPhee and Brian McClellan. Think about me and Chris Russo. I've known Chris since nursery school. Three years old, I've known Chris. Chris and I played stickball together. We were always playing pickup football games together. We were always on the schoolyard playing basketball together. We were always hanging out at Chris's house. Chris was an only child and I was over at his house all the time, really almost on a daily basis. And his uh, mom and dad were very strict. Molly, who is still with us, thank goodness, and Tony, who passed years ago, very, very strict. Chris grew up in a very strict environment. But think about this. I grew up with Chris, Chris is my best friend. We went to Scotland to celebrate our 60th birthdays with 10 other guys, played nine rounds of golf in seven days. Chris was just elected into the Radio Hall of Fame. You see him on Wednesdays with Stephen A. on ESPN's first take. Chris has got his own channel on SiriusXM, Mad Dog Radio. It's just fascinating how life works out sometimes. And you never know when you meet an individual What's going to happen to that individual? You don't really know. I mean, you know, think about George McPhee and Brian McClellan growing up as little kids and, you know, having a dream of playing in the National Hockey League and not only playing in the National Hockey League, but then being general managers of a team, both being in Stanley Cups. George has yet to win one. He lost the Stanley Cup with Washington, lost the Stanley Cup with Vegas, lost the Stanley Cup with Vancouver. Mack won a Stanley Cup as a player and wins the Stanley Cup as a general manager, you think about stories like that, you think about relationships and you just never know where you're going to go in life and who's going to be with you and who's not going to be with you. So I'm really thankful for what I've been able to achieve and accomplish in my profession, but I'm really grateful and thankful for all of the experiences that I've had along the way. And so many great people that I've met. I found myself sharing a taxi to the airport one day after announcing a Raiders-Texans game with John Robinson, the former coach. And we were in the taxi together for about 30 minutes, and I just had the most amazing conversation with John Robinson. I'd never met John before. I had never talked to John before and shared my background with him. And we had mutual friends from USC. You know, you talk about that era and you talk about you know, the show that I do now with Sean Salisbury and I'm really close with Mike Lamb who did the show with me in Sacramento and Mike and Sean are like very close friends and there was another player on the team, Greg Coet, who is a sheriff's deputy in Sacramento and Greg and Sean are very good friends and I was out with Greg in Sacramento one night I go, man, I got we got to take our selfie, I got to send this to Sean and Sal sends me back. I goes, oh my God, you know Coet? I'm like, yeah, I know Coet. You know, it's such a small world, but relationships and communicating and experiencing what life has to offer cuz you never know what's going to be on beyond the next curtain right i never thought in a million years i'd be doing podcast post game shows on youtube shows on listen app but you deal with the ups and downs in life you really never know what's around the corner and you have to hope that you deal with it head on but if you're blessed enough to have a lot of great relationships along the way, then everything always seems to work out. As long as you do things the right way, treat people the right way, form relationships that are with you for your lifetime. I talked about some of the former kings. I haven't seen Reggie Theus in years. Reggie, if I needed something and I needed something really bad, I could call Reggie right now and Reggie would go, Grant, what do you need? I could call Spud Webb right now and go, Spud, I'm in a lot of problems. I'm having a lot of difficulties, man. I need your help. He'd go, brother, what can I give you? What do you need? That's exactly how he talks to me. All right? When you have Vladdy, I could call Vladdy right now and go, Vladdy, I need you. I could call Peja. I could call Scott Pollard. I have friends in life that I've met through this great profession. I mean, George McPhee would give me the shirt off his back. He would do whatever I needed. All right? It's about friendships. And here's the other thing. If I was in a position and any of those people needed my help, it would be, what do you need? What can I do for you? How fast do you need it? What do you need? I can be on a plane in one hour. I can be there. What do you need? To me, that's what life is about. And life is about being able to communicate and being able to talk to you every day. And I always talk about this. I would not be doing this if I didn't have the support and all the positive feedback, and all the comments, and the people that have been in my corner from day one that are still in my corner. I am blessed, and I am grateful for you, and I thank you very, very much. I hope you've enjoyed this week of my podcast, Grant Stories, both on Tuesday and today. I've got many more. We'll do this again, but again, I really hope that yesterday was a fabulous day with you and your loved ones and your friends, and once again, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. It is now time for our Crowd Ultra Q&A. Just go to CrowdUltra.com and maybe I'll answer the question on my next podcast. David asked, do you wish you could be there experiencing this season with the Kings? Yeah, of course I do. I mean, I miss doing the games. I've been very open about that. I loved it. I was, it was my life for uh, 32 years. But as I said in my podcast, you know, you never know what's around the corner and you deal with it and you move on. Andrew asked, do you believe NFL owners colluded to avoid fully guaranteed contracts? Angel. that's really difficult for me to answer. I don't know. Collusion is a very strong word. I would have no way of knowing that. Sam wants to know, what do you think will happen to the players, teams, and arenas evolve with FTX getting sued? It's going to be interesting, Sam. Obviously, I'm not an attorney. I'm not an expertise in legal matters, but this is going to be really interesting to see what happens. Joey wants to know, which team do you think Sean Payton will end up coaching? Joey, if I had to guess, I would say the Dallas Cowboys. Alex wants to know, will the Texans be A lot better next season. Alex, the easy answer is this. They can't be much worse. Joe wants to know, have I watched Drew Gooden call any Wizards game? Joe, I have not. I have not. And Pat wants to know, why would the NHL promote a transgender hockey tournament? Pat, they're woke. That's why. That's why. Now, I don't have a problem with a transgender event at all. I have a problem, and I've been very open with this. I think men need to play men's sports. I think women play women's sports. And I think if transgender want to play sports, I think it's fabulous. They should have every right in the world to play a sport. But it needs to be in a different classification. I do not believe biological men should be able to play women's sports. That's the way I feel. I don't think it's fair. But I do believe that they should be able to continue their athletic career. And I think there should be a transgender competition. All right? That's how I feel about that whole thing. Hey, if you want to have your question answered, send me a question. Go to crowdultra.com. It's time for Rant. rant, rant, rant. And today's rant is brought to you by Zoom 180. Zoom 180 is in production right now. It's a flashlight that will absolutely blow you Away, Trust me, you've never seen anything like this. And when it becomes available to you, you're going to be napes, 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 napes. How do I get a Zoom 180? How do I do it? I'll walk you through the process when it becomes available. But just remember the name, Zoom 180. All right, I got a question. What you eat and what I eat are probably different, right? What you like, maybe I don't like. What you put on your hot dog, maybe I don't put on my hot dog. Whether you eat prime rib, whether you eat turkey, whether you eat tomatoes and lettuce for Thanksgiving, why would I care what you eat? You know, it blows me away when I see people on social media getting on others because they don't approve of what they're eating. Why would anyone give a damn what you eat? You know, I visit Asia a lot, and it is unbelievable what you see on the street in Asia. I mean, you see little frogs that have been grilled, You see crickets, you see fried roaches, fried lizards. Like I wouldn't eat that in a freaking million years, but I don't sit there on the street and tell people, how the hell do you eat that? How the hell do you eat that? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Again, you know, Thanksgiving yesterday, and I'm seeing, you know, people have different likes and dislikes. What difference does it make to you what someone else eats? Seriously, what difference does it make to you what somebody else eats? Does that bother you? I've never understood that. I've never understood why people get into such a debate, whether it's uh, is a hot dog, a sandwich or not, or is it appropriate to put ketchup on your hot dog? I mean, who the hell cares what you put on your hot dog, all right? Put, put whatever you want on there. Who cares? If you don't like it, don't eat it. To me, it's pretty simple. Why are you bothered by what others eat? Never understood that. And that's my rant for today. And that is my podcast for today. Enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend, everybody. And don't forget that coming up tonight after the Kings and the Celtics, I'll be on YouTube live. Looking forward to that. Thanks again, everybody. Have yourself a fabulous weekend.